Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. All right, so we're in week three. We got the handouts there. Uh, I guess you might as well just take the, the completely new one. We're going to start part three with the transmission of the New Testament. Better get there. So that's, uh, if you can read the little print, it's uh, slide number 30. And yeah, the new slides are from 37 on, I think. So. I sent an outline of the presentation to a guy at the Museum of the Bible because I thought that folks might be more interested in that than what he did, but I didn't tell him that. I just said people might be interested in this at at a program that I hope to be able to talk at. All right. So we, we went through you know, what, what the canon is not, and learned a lot about what it was. And we went into the solution to the problem was just the self-authenticating canon. That is, we can't use history or the pronouncements of the church or experts to tell us what the canon of Scripture is. We have to go to the Scripture itself. Only the Scripture can tell us, is of highest enough authority to tell us what is Scripture. It's self-authenticating, just like God only swears by himself. Because there is no higher authority than God for him to make a deal. He does it by himself. Same thing uh, with this, the same logic. Okay, so now we're part three, the transmission of the New Testament text. So you, uh, that should be... It could be page 15 in the full handout. I, I, I don't know. I just sort of... Okay. All right. Yeah. Whatever that is, it's so small. Uh, 30. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. So I can identify with Amanda because when I was in college, I always sat on the front row. But I, I wasn't as nice as her. There I could pay attention, but I could also get the professor's attention if I will easier. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, so now we're on the transmission of the New Testament text. So this will hopefully be a little more uh, show and tell. All right, so the topics are manuscripts, the ancient versions, and then textual criticism. All right, so... Uh, ah, okay. So, you know, Tim divided all this. I got a manuscripts. All right. Ah, I divided it. Okay. So, manuscripts. Do you, do you, are, are you there? So, we're on the manuscripts. So, by definition, they're handwritten. Manu and script, right? Handwritten. And that's true of all books before the printing press. Hand copying is never perfect. So no two manuscripts are the same. 
even if they were copied from the same exemplar. You know, we call that an exemplar is the source from which you trans or copy the example. So no two manuscripts are the same, unlike copies of printed books. Once you've got the, the typeset, you can just make as many identical copies as you want. Now, some books were produced in more professional circumstances, like they call them a, a scriptorium, is where a, man, a place where manuscripts were copied. So sometimes you have that. Private copies might not be the same quality. You might have someone that made their own copy. You know, I, I worked for a vet in uh, South Carolina when I was a teenager, and he was from the Ukraine, and you know, he lived through the Nazis and the Russians, and he went to vet school in Germany, and they had no money there. They had nothing in Germany after the war. And he said they used to copy their textbooks by hand. So they had a textbook for veterinary school. So it probably wasn't as nice as a professionally copied one. So you have private copies. And when scholars look at some of the remnants of manuscripts, they can see that there's different qualities of copying, especially from the manuscripts that came from Egypt, the papyrus manuscripts that came out of some scrap heaps at a place called Oxyrhynchus. Uh, just hundreds of thousands of fragments they dug up. And it was just the trash piles. And originally when the, the scholars went there, yeah, one of them just saw like pages sticking out of the sand. Yeah, he dug it up and there it was papyrus. Stuff that's 1,500 years old and older. But a lot of that came from these scrap heaps because it doesn't rain there. So you throw it away and it's, it might be biodegradable, but it doesn't degrade because there is no water there. So most of our oldest manuscripts have come from Egypt. Even the parchment ones, they come out of monasteries in Egypt where it's dry. You know, I've been to India and looked at manuscripts and there it's humid and nasty and you open a book and something might crawl out on your hands. So they don't hold up so well. Uh, so anyhow, no manuscripts are the same. Uh, so Origen, you know, we, we saw him earlier, he, the commentaries he wrote and things. He, uh, he wrote about the middle of the third century about the manuscripts. He, the difference among the manuscripts of the Gospels had become great, either through negligence of some copyists or through the perverse audacity of others. They either neglect to check over what they have transcribed, or in the process of checking, they lengthen or shorten as they please. So that was a commentary on Matthew. So, but not all the manuscripts were bad, otherwise Origen couldn't comment on quality. So they, had, they knew what the good copies were in the big libraries, uh, so, uh, you know, they were smart people and, and you know, that scholars would go to where the authoritative manuscripts were. And in fact, you know, uh, the, the best copies of the Old Testament were kept in the temple. You know, the, the, they had their own authorized authoritative copies back in the time of Jesus and before that among the Jews. They, they, these guys weren't stupid. Jerome, the translator of the Latin Vulgate, uh, which he did about 382 to 405, and he was writing about the old Latin text, which is the, also known as the Vetus Latina. So he, what he did is he revised the old Latin, we'll get into that in a little bit while, but uh, he, he complained about the diversity among the Vetus Latina manus, manuscripts. 
And that was a major reason for him to produce the Vulgate. Okay? <clears throat> so there were likely authoritative copies. I mentioned that. So many manuscripts show corrections. So if you start looking, and you look at little tiny scribblings, and I'll show you. I'll show you that later on. Uh, most of the errors are quite minor. So you need to keep in mind that uh, you know, the, the theory that they were dumb back then doesn't hold. These ancient scribes and scholars were really smart, and they were careful, and they were resourceful way back then. And they weren't inferior in any way to the best and brightest today. And in fact, you know, when you were smart, you went into theology and philosophy and, you know, and history. That's what they studied back then. So the best and brightest, they would have gravitated to theology and things like that. Today, there's so many opportunities that you just get a handful to go to seminary and they go to business school or whatever. But there was like more of a concentration of the best and brightest uh, in, in what we're interested in back then. So, so how long did the manuscripts last before they were worn out? So Craig Evans, did I bring that? Uh, no, I started to run out of room in my briefcase. Actually, that doesn't look like many books, but I was packed up. Uh, so brought that last week, uh, but Craig Evans, uh, did a very interesting study. In 2015, the book was published, and he showed that even papyrus manuscripts could be used for 200 years or more. And, you know, parchment's a lot tougher than papyrus. But, uh, and what he did is he looked in these scrap heaps in, in Egypt, and he could see that uh, uh, sometimes he found dates on Manuscripts. Those were more civil documents, and a lot of deeds and contracts they find in the scrap heaps. But they could, they they began to get a sense of you know how old these manuscripts were and where they were in the, the stratum and how long you know they, they were in use before they got thrown away. So he did a very thorough analysis that we can't get into here, but he showed that they could be used for 200 years or more. So papyrus actually was fairly tough. Even though it was made out of the, the papyrus, the pith of the papyrus reeds from the Nile River. But this implies that our earliest surviving manuscripts, which come from the, the late, mid to late first century, a uh, second century, sorry, like 150, 200, you know, the oldest manuscripts, the fragments at least, and so we don't have any like full thing out of the New Testament from that early. They're just fragments, but they show that it existed. Uh, actually, when they found that old fragment of John that's in the John Rylands Library in Manchester, supposedly the oldest fragment, there were theories that John, the Gospel of John wasn't written until late in the second century, and then they find this manuscript and bing takes it down to the first or early second century. Some people even thought late first century, but it, it gets difficult to date uh, manuscripts. Sometimes we're lucky and they have a date in them, but all those earliest ones, they don't have any dates in them. So, uh, but, yeah, Tim. I was going to say, it might be interesting to point out that the transmission of the Old Testament was totally, totally different. Copies of the Old Testament were made by scribes. Yeah who were professionals 
Yeah. And their work was so meticulous that, for instance, every time they would come to a place where the word Yahweh appeared, they would write it and then go wash their hands and come back. Not because they were dirty, it was a ceremonial washing of yeah. their hands. Yeah. But then after they were done, it was checked and rechecked. So the, the transformation of the Old Testament, we don't have much variation in the text. No, we don't. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of that's later. But still, Paul came out of that tradition. And the early Christians were Jews, so they all knew about how manuscripts were to be taken care of. So anyhow, Craig Evans finds that these manuscripts could have been reasonably in use for a couple hundred years. So if things were written in 40, 50 AD, now you're saying no, they, they could have lasted till well into the third century, the 230s, the 240s. Uh, you know, back then things weren't as stable. So you have wars and things that destroyed stuff or the roofs weren't so tight. But, but still, these would have been precious documents. So uh, Evans, so what we could have possibly is that the oldest manuscripts we have could have been copied from the originals. That's possible. We'll never be able to verify that, but it, it's certainly possible. There's not this long string of transmission. Yeah, Shay. Uh, testing of papyrus itself to see when the papyrus was made, because I'm sure they wouldn't keep a lot of papyrus in stock for years. They, they do, but you know, the, even radiocarbon dating is only approximate. So it's probably more reliable than trying to analyze the handwriting, but it's still approximate, and they have a real aversion to destroying even small fragments of these manuscripts. But, uh, yeah. So, uh, but, oh, we'll get, we'll get to that when we get to textual criticism, but... Um, so Tertullian, let me get here. Uh, oh, 190, he wrote a book called Prescription Against the Heretics. So what did he write? I'm just giving you a, a segment here. Run over the apostolic churches in which the very thrones of the apostles are still preeminent in their places, in which their own authentic writings are read, uttering the voice and representing the face of each of them severally. And, you know, with the writing, it's like if you had the writing, and Paul implies that in his epistles, this is me talking to you. And that's what he's talking about. And, and then, so, uh, anyhow, uh, Tertullian goes, Achaia is near you, in which you find Corinth. Since you're not far from Macedonia, you have Philippi. And here, too, you have the Thessalonians. Since you are able to cross to Asia, you get to Ephesus. Since, moreover, you are close to Italy, you have Rome, from which there comes even in our own hands the very authority, that is, of the apostles themselves. Yeah. Isn't that cool? So when was he writing? Uh, about 190. All right. Peter, Bishop of Alexandria, he died 311. So now we're early 4th century. He wrote, now it was the He's writing about the crucifixion, John, Gospel of John. Now it was the preparation, about the third hour, as the accurate books have it, and the autograph. That's idiocheron, 
same hand. That's what that, the Greek is. It means same hand. Idios, same. Charon is hand. Same hand itself of the evangelist John, which up to this day has been by the grace of God preserved in the most holy church of Ephesus, and there is venerated by the faithful. Gaius of Rome, early third century, so in the early 200s, cited by Eusebius. So we don't have Gaius's book, but Eusebius cut and pasted for us. They, so Gaius wrote, early third century, they, that is the followers of the heretic Artemon, they have not feared to corrupt divine scriptures. For this cause, they did not fear to lay hands on the divine scriptures, saying that they had corrected them. For they cannot even deny that this crime is there, seeing that the copies were written in their own hand, and they did not receive the scriptures in this condition from their teachers, nor can they show originals from which they made their own copies. The implication is that Gaius could show originals, that he made his copies of the scriptures from the heretics, altered it. So th th these originals could mean either the autographs or you know, really early copies. Okay, so some terminology as we continue to move on. So papyrus I've already discussed. That's uh, uh, manuscripts made from the papyrus, the pith of the papyrus reed from Egypt. And they take the pith, the soft stuff, cut it out of the reed, and they make strips of it, and they place them one way, and they place them the other way, and they pressed it down and let it dry out, and then you got paper. Uh, so it's pretty neat stuff. Vellum is a term for parchment. It's a, you know, made of leather. The codex, the word codex, it refers to the book form of a manuscript, as opposed to the scroll. You know, a scroll rolls, but the codex, it's like a, a scroll cut up and sewn together. Okay, that's a codex. Unseals are manuscripts, and I'll show you a picture of one later, uh, written in all capital letters, or Greek manuscripts, unsealed manuscripts. You'll, you may run into that term. And, and when you have an unseal, it's all capitals, there's no spacing between the words. If the word doesn't fit on one line, it just continues on the next, and I'll show you that. It's kind of cool to read them. It's like you got to decode the thing. Yeah, I mean, if you, you just spoke Greek and you really knew it, you could just kind of, uh, kind of read along, just like you could read English. If it was all jumbled up, you could, you, know, you could hear it. And cursive manuscripts were written in a more cursive script. I, I find that really hard to read. Um, but I'm not a Greek manuscript person. I do Syriac manuscripts. And I think the Syrians do it a whole lot better copying so now we go to the ancient versions. So lingua, Greek was a lingua franca of the Greco-Roman world, and that trend began with Alexander the Great, who died in 323 BC. Hebrew and some Aramaic portions are the original languages of the Old Testament. You know, parts of Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah are written in Aramaic, because by then Babylon had conquered Israel, and the Aramaic was the, the new lingua franca, and um, Therefore, they wrote uh, that. In fact, what we call the Jewish or the Hebrew alphabet is really an Aramaic alphabet. The square Hebrew script is an Aramaic uh, alphabet. So 
Greek is the original language of the New Testament, even though Jesus and the apostles probably mostly used Palestinian Aramaic. Now, not everyone spoke Hebrew and Greek, so translations were made. So uh, even though this is on the New Testament, the, the Old Testament was translated into Greek uh, somewhere you know, 285 to 247 uh, B.C. Um, and it was translated Hebrew into Greek. And it was done in Egypt at the request of Ptolemy II Philadelphus. So one of Alexander's generals was named Ptolemy. So this guy must have been a grandson, or I, I don't know. So if, you know, Alexander, I don't remember. Alexander died 323, so this guy's uh, yeah, 285, give it a couple generations. So supposedly there were 72 translators, that's why they call it the Septuagint because that re, refers to the 70, so Septuaginta in the, in, the, in the Latin. So that's a copy of the Septuagint. So, uh, so that's, and it was translated because by this time, most of the Jews in the Greco-Roman world didn't know Hebrew. In fact, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, became the Bible of the Jews and therefore became the Bible of the Christians. And when there was this big, big falling away of the Christians and the Jews, and the Jews said, well, ah, we don't like that old Greek translation anymore, or some heretical stuff in it, so we'll go back to the Greek, or the Hebrew. So now they do, but back then, you know, the time of Jesus, Jews all over the world, you read Acts 2, when people came to Pentecost from all parts of the world. They, most of them would have been reading a, a Septuagint. So, oh, there you go. Septuagint was the Bible, most Jews. So later, Greek Christians began using it. Oh, and, and there's a, a version of Origen produced a six-column Bible. You think you've got the parallel New Testament or the parallel Bible and you know, all these versions? Well, Origen did it like 1,800 years ago. And he had... Uh, Hexaplus, there are six columns. He had the Hebrew, a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew, and three other Greek translations. So by the time of origin, Greek was so popular that other people were getting in on the act and trying to improve on uh, the Septuagint, Theodosian, Aquila, and Symmachus. And uh, origin's Hexaplus, unfortunately, doesn't really, didn't survive in the Greek, but through the Syriac medium, a lot of things in Greek survived in Syriac because they'd copy it and then it just stayed alive. Uh, so Paul of Tella in Egypt copied Origen's Septuagint column and he included all of Origen's footnotes. Because Origen, he just didn't have six columns there, no commentary. He had footnotes and you know, all kinds of things, variant readings. And so uh, Paul of Tella copied that column and he, he put in all those notes. So we know a lot about Origen's hexaplan through the Syriac medium. All right, so that's just a little bit about the Septuagint, the earliest versions in the New Testament. Syriac, it's Eastern Aramaic, similar to what Jesus spoke, but not identical. And in the Syriac, you've got the old Syriac version, and you have the Peshitta, and then you have a Philoxenian and the Harclean. And they all just became more and more literal translations of the Greek. 
Old Syriac was reasonably loose, Peshitta was loose and very idiomatic, and then the Philoxenian and Harkling just became more like reading interlinears, uh, especially the Harkling. The Latin, we've got the Old Latin, or the Vetus Latina, that Jerome uh, complained about, and then the Vulgate, translated by Jerome, and the Coptic versions are also very old, and there were a number of dialects there. So I'll talk about a little bit about the Syriac version. That's my, my, my favorite. So the old Syriac is the oldest. And there are only two gospel manuscripts uh, that survive. And, and recently they found a few fragments from the old Syriac. It's called the Vetus Sura. You know, like the Vetus Latina, you got the Vetus Sura. So the old guys back in Victorian times, they always liked Latin names. So, uh, but only survives in the Gospels. And I actually found a missing portion when I was in Egypt many years ago. So it, it's near and dear to my heart. My first re, uh, research was in trying to recover the old Syriac text of Acts. And, and I've now come to the conclusion that it wasn't really revised as much as the Gospels was. But that's a whole other thing. But you have uh, the old Syriac, very fascinating and then there's a Peshitta version. This is the standard text. You can call it the Syriac Vulgate. It's what the Syriac churches use today, is the Peshitta. And it has that shorter canon that I mentioned to you. It leaves out the minor Catholic epistles of 2 Peter, 2 3 John, Jude, and Revelation. Uh, the Peshitta was probably produced in the 3rd or 4th centuries. There's no historical record of it. Um, so... Oh, the oldest dated biblical manuscript is in Syriac. <laughs> All right, so something interesting about the Peshitta is that there are Palestinian Aramaic loanwords. Uh, it's like they still remembered a little bit how Jesus spoke. I mean, it was only a few hundred years, and it's a similar dialect, and the words were understandable. So there, there, there is this memory of Palestinian Aramaic. And some of the words, in fact, you know, this is typical. So the word for disciple in the Peshitta is not like what you'd expect in normal Syriac. It uses uh, the, uh, the, the Palestinian Aramaic, Talmida, or apostle uh, is shliha. Again, these are like real important words. It'd almost be like technical terms, disciple, apostle, uh, cross and crucify. They also are based on uh, Palestinian Aramaic roots because there's another way to do it. And if you read the literature, they, 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 can, they have persuasive arguments. A lot of it is they look in the Peshitta Old Testament and they say, well, they don't use these words like that there. You know, they try to find some independent uh, source because you know, once it came into use in the, in the New Testament, it sort of went into the normal vocabulary of the Syriac church. And another interesting thing is a word for salvation or save. Uh, it, it comes from Haya. Yeah, you see it. I think I, I had some figure there. With a, you see those X's? I think there was like a dot underneath the letter. Uh, so, but it, it's Haya. Uh, means life. That's how they express salvation. They didn't have like soterion in Greek. Yeah, they didn't have it. They had life. And the Savior was the vivifier, the machiana. So 
as opposed to, you know, later on, they'd say the paruka. And that word was used later on, uh, especially for salvation and Savior. The, the, the parukana or paruka were used later on. But the oldest and the earliest Syriac writers would refer to these using the archaic terms. So that's, that's kind of interesting. So sometimes when I read life in the Gospels, I just wonder if Jesus isn't talking about salvation. It's the real life. You know. Hey, without getting too distracted, okay. I want to spring up a question for us. And I'm thinking back, most of us are probably saying more than once the passion of Christ. Yeah. Which supposedly, if I understand it, they, they were speaking here and they. Yeah. And they got it from someplace where they went supposedly to find people who actually spoke. Yeah, I think that came from the Peshitta. Okay. I mean, I could kind of follow it. My ears aren't trained very well to, to just understand it, but I could, I picked through it, but I believe, I'm, my guess is it was as the Peshitta, the Syriac text, because it'd be so close. Uh, you know, you get some guys that know Arabic and they can kind of run with that stuff. Uh, yeah. I mean, I know people in the Middle East that, whose first tongue is Arabic and they're pretty much fluent with Syriac because they kind of sound alike and, you know, if you knew French, you could pick up Latin fairly quickly, right? Well, it's the same way. Uh, so there are some folks in the Middle East and in the West but uh, that yeah, they can hear that stuff. Then there was a later, uh, so you had the Old Syriac, the Peshitta, which is a standard text, but then there was a bishop named Philoxenus who translated, he revised the Peshitta to make it follow more the Greek because he was involved in the Christological controversies of his day, uh, you know, where they're trying to, dis, you know, what is the nature of Christ? Does he have one nature? Does he have two natures? Are they mixed? Are they without confusion? They just went on and on about this. So, uh, you know, sometimes I wonder if when we argue about the rapture or something, I use it before or in the middle or after. It's the same kind of arguments today that you know, the, the thing was, it was this Christology and, you know, what was Christ's nature? And uh, trying to hammer this out, they had to deal with heretics that said weird stuff like Christ left the body before he died. And all kinds of weird stuff. But anyhow, Philoxenus, uh, yeah produced a version. Today we only have it for the minor Catholic epistles, 2 Peter, 2 3 John, Jude, and Revelation. The rest was lost. And I recently found the only use of the version used in a lectionary. You know, a lectionary is a book where you, you get the scriptures readings for Sundays and feast days. Uh, it, it's a genre of uh, books, so it's just extracts. And, and I actually found I was looking for Acts citations in a lectionary, but for the Catholic epistles, the citations always begin with Acts, then it'd say the letter of James, or Acts, the letter of Peter. Except these said Acts, the letter of Peter, second. So I looked it up, and by golly, I found some remnants of the Philoxenian version in this lectionary, dated 824. I even brought, you know, if there's time, you can look. I have pictures. So I've, I'm working on this to publish something. But, you know, there's a lectionary. you got two columns of Syriac. And, you know, I just go through this looking. And all I was doing, I'm just looking for Acts, you know, because I want Acts. 
And then, but again, when I see acts, and sometimes I see it with, uh, you know, acts, letter of, letter the second of Peter, sorry. So not letter second of Peter second. So uh, I found that. So it's only one year younger than the oldest remnant of that. So, and it's an electionary, which has never been found before. So they were actually using that version in church services. That's what was interesting. And Second Peter, which was outside the canon. So uh, I, got, I got to make up a story and, and get that out. So that's Philoxenian. A Harkland version later on, that's like an interlinear. If you ever read an interlinear Bible and you try to read the English, it isn't very good English. Well, that's how the Harkland version was. There we have the whole New Testament, and it occurs in a lot of manuscripts, unlike the Philoxenian. Latin, the old Latin, I said, was the, the oldest form. But it was actually used as late as the 12th and 13th centuries. You know, it's comfortable, you know, in, in different areas. So Metzger, in his early versions, comments, it is a remarkable fact that the Latin churches do not seem to have retained any memory of this great event in their history. Latin patristic writers write no legend or tradition bearing on the subject, that is, of the old Latin text. I, I read another quote from you last time on the canon where he says it's just an amazing fact of church history that there is no historical record of the canonization of the New Testament. So he's saying the same thing, because these things go back, it's just the way it always was. In my opinion, it's the way it always was. So, so we have the old Latin, St. Augustine wrote, uh, you know, he's complaining uh, about the old Latin, so he's writing late 4th century. Those who translated the scriptures from Hebrew to Greek can be counted, like, you know, you got the Septuagint, Theodosian, Aquila, and Symmachus. But the Latin translators are out of all number. For in the early days of the faith, every man who happened to gain possession of a Greek manuscript and who imagined he had any facility in both languages, however slight that may have been, dared to make a translation. That's Augustine. Uh, so the Vulgate, in 382, Pope Damasus, he, who was a bishop of Rome, but, uh, commissioned Jerome to produce a new version. So Jerome was a scholar, and he translated the Old Testament from Hebrew and, uh, and, and revised the Old Latin. There was some local resistance, just like some people like the King James to the more modern versions. So it's interesting that uh, when you read the preface to the Gospels of the, the Vulgate, Jerome wrote in the, the preface, sort of addressed to Damasus, the Pope, you urge me to revise the old Latin version and, as it were, to sit in judgment of sit the, the copies of the scriptures which are now scattered throughout the world. And inasmuch as they differ, you would have me decide which of them agree with the Greek original. The labor is one of love, but at the same time, perilous. In judging others, I must be content to be judged by all. Is there a man, learned or unlearned, who would not break out immediately into violent language and call me a forger for having the audacity to add or to make any changes or corrections therein? Kind of sounds like today. <laughs> all right. So, yeah, they, they talked about the variety. So now we get to a, a technical field called textual criticism. As I mentioned, no two manuscripts are the same. Jerome said there's almost as many forms of the text as there are manuscripts. 
and Augustine said the same thing. So since there aren't any two manuscripts alike, uh, we need to analyze them to see what the, quote, original said. So that involves collating manuscripts against the standard text. So collating is you compare. I've, I do a whole lot of that. It's like I do Acts, and it's like I take three or four words in Syriac in the manuscript, because that's about all I can hold in my head, and I, and I go through three or four words in the printed text. And I'm like, you know, vice versa. But it's just, any difference I put on a note card. I have thousands and thousands of cards. So that's collating. That's sort of the first step is to find out the variant readings. In a way, it's like being a scribe, except you're only copying the differences as opposed to the whole manuscript. Although, if you have a standard and you copy all the differences, then you actually can express that manuscript if you wanted to. So, uh, so that, that analysis of variant guides the textual critic to an opinion of what is the original. A critical text, maybe you've heard that term, is the end product of textual criticism. It contains a revised text based on the analysis of the variants and try to create the, what they think is the original. And usually it includes a critical apparatus, that's footnotes at the bottom, that provides a summary of the variants. So I've got, this is Acts in Greek. This is the result of the, the this is the, the, the major critical edition for the Acts of the Apostles. Two volumes for all of Acts. So, uh, you know, it uh, came out a few years ago. It was my big Christmas present in 2019. But here you get, it's, all right, now just on this page, part of Acts 322. All right, yes, one, two, three, ten words, and then all these footnotes. Ugh. But it, it's all there. See that? Yeah. 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 All these footnotes. And the footnotes tell you what manuscripts had what reading. So they've decided what they think the original is, but to be a resource, they give scholars all the evidence so they can review it. So that's uh, critical apparatus. So, so th there's a, a picture of, those are all my note cards as of you know, last week or something. Uh, so I put a ruler in there so you get an idea. So there's about five feet of that. So you know, I figure there's probably 5,000 cards. And some cards contain lots of variant readings. So uh, it, it's kind of slow going. And the yellow indicates lectionaries, the plain or the biblical manuscripts, and then the blue is from patristic citations. So, uh, but I'm nearing the end of that. I'm working with a guy in Germany to, to finalize a few things, and then we'll start to produce the critical apparatus. And the guy in Germany is a genius that will make certain decisions as to what should be the original reading in the Syriac. He worked on this. He, his name is Andrews Yukel. He just retired, but he was the, the Syriac guy for the Greek guys. And he worked at the Institute of New Testament Textual Research his whole career. And just, that's, there's this institute in Germany, I guess the government funds it. It's been multi-generational. They just work on the text of the New Testament and, and re keeping all the variant readings. And now it's all getting computerized, so it's a lot easier. Uh, yeah, I, I, I use it. 
they, they published this. That's sort of the, the New Testament, um, which has got an awful lot in it. So that's just, this is just a minor little project. So, oh, and then I've got a picture of a manuscript. Uh, all right, so that's one I collated. I don't can I make it? No, it doesn't go bigger. But if you see here, you've got some uh, notes from a scribe. And if you look, you've got four little dots and four little dots, and they match right there. Oh, you can't see that. But <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. So, you know, you've got, and I hope I don't kill it. So you got that, and there's four little dots here and four little dots there, and they go right there, four little dots. So uh, you know, it's, it has something to do with a, a, a lectionary reading note. Uh, but also, you can't really see it, but right around there, uh, there are actually Greek vowels on some of the Syriac words because they didn't know how to pronounce them, like Caesarea, uh, and Azotus. This was from Acts 9 or wherever it is. So, all right. Oops. So, I, I guess I need to finish up. So, the codex. So, uh, there's another field that's come up since uh, in more last couple decades. I'm looking at manuscripts as artifacts, ar archaeological artifacts. And, one, and they look at them and they say, so what does this object tell me about the people who made it? So it's an interesting approach, rather than you just look at the words and make all those little notes. So as I mentioned, the codex form is the book form. The Jews used scrolls, and so did the pagans. All right, so nice books were scrolls back at the time of Jesus or in the early church. But uh, somehow the codex was adopted, but it has more advantages because it's compact. You could put all the Pauline epistles in in one book, or the Gospels, okay? That would be very difficult with a scroll. Um, so we find that, that they're practical, and they were easier to read from. And some of these earliest manuscripts uh, are written with certain helps. They got wide margins, and they're easier to read than a scroll would have been. Like they were used in public reading, just like the beginning of Revelation talks about people reading. So 2 Timothy 4.13, who's got that? When thou comest, bring the parchment, bring the, scro uh, the scrolls, but especially the parchments. Paul's writing to Timothy, the end of his life. You know, you know Carpus have I left here, and there, and then Demas. And first, but when you come, he's telling to bring a... Uh, he actually tells them to bring like a container or a cloak, depending on how you translate it. But then he says, the, the books and the parchments. And the word parchments is membrana, which is in Greek, but it's also a Latin word. And it refers to the codex form. I can't go through all of that. But it also refers to being uh, made of vellum or parchment. But he distinguishes that he's got the books and the parchments. And, and the parchments refer to the codex form. So all, apparently, before Paul died, they were already using it. Th th there were these, like, notebooks, you know, you could get for school, or maybe you're a contractor, building contractor, and you just kind of write notes. They, they had these crude books, but it was for the hoi polloi. You know, they didn't, not, not for good literature, but they were uh, 
adopted by the church. So I wonder if it began with Paul. I don't know. But, uh, that's, but we see that. So it suggests to us, again, I think like the canon, there's some kind of an apostolic origin where the, it, that authority could be stamped on the format. And then there's these nomina sacra, holy names, okay? They're uh, abbreviated in the oldest Greek manuscripts. They don't do that in Syriac, but they do it. Like for God is Theos, so the abbreviation would, and you know, Th, T-H, is one letter in Greek, is Theta. So it's like T-H and S, first letter and the last letter, they just put in there with a line over it. People knew what it said. Or Christ, you know, C-H is really the key. You know, so when you see Xmas, it's not really like X. It's the key, the first letter of Christ. <laughs> so Christos. So again, they'd use the he in a sigma, or they could express different uh, other forms of uh, the word by using a different ending. Penuma, P-N-A, P. So, and here is... This is cool. Now, you've got a bigger picture. All right, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, okay? And right at the beginning, you know, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, his son of, okay, that. So here's the, the a uh, magnified point. And you have the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Iota, and Oops on, that's the last letter of the genitive form. You know, Yesu. And then the next, Christa, you see the X? And again, the, 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 what looks like a Y is an Upsilon in, in the uncial script. Uh, so those are, that's, those are the nomina sacra, and they're very standardized all over. Let me interrupt for just a second before we lose this little point you just made. Um, I don't know if I've heard the word Xmas in a sense. That was a, uh, a business cheap way of saying Christmas. Yeah. It's not, right? Well, yeah. It is, but it isn't. <laughs> yeah. But you know that Cairo symbol? It's like an X with a P in it. You know, you see the Cairo? Because the P is really a capital R, at least to our eyes. But that's a, a very ancient Christian symbol. So anyhow, you have that nomina sacra. And then, actually, right between the lines up there, you have an alternate spelling for euangelion. <laughs> With two commas. <laughs> so anyhow. And for the troglodytes, we're supposed to be reading right to left on this, correct? Yes, Greek reads like English. Syriac, you know, I showed you that. You go... You go the other way. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes when I'm reading Syriac and I pick up the Greek Bible, I, <laughs> my eyes go wrong. <laughs> yes, Tim. Well, with the inseals, the way they left this space between words, and then with these abbreviations, this all had to do with vellum being so valuable. And in such short yeah. supply that they didn't want to waste space by leaving space in between. Right, yes. And then they would abbreviate some words too. And you can see the end of the first line. Arche to Uangeli. Yeah. So you have the beginning of the gospel, 
and you have, it ends in an iota there, that I, capital I, but the last two words of, the, of the, that word are the first two letters of the second line, which looks like an O and, and a Y, okay? So they just wrap it. Yeah. All right, so oh, again, another artifact is that the order of the Pauline corpus is always the same. So if th these things were determined at a la some later date, it wouldn't be standardized all over the Christian world. And that, that was actually Tertullian's argument against the heretics, is that we read the same Bible, we have the same doctrine, we can show that it came from the apostles, and it's the same all over the world. Because, and if it had come later, it wouldn't be the same. So he was a lawyer, so uh, he, he was very logical. So anyhow, so these, uh, these uh, artifacts also show us that suggest apostolic origins. One last thing. So you had, we'll say, Paul in the Codex. Why did Moses write in Hebrew? He was learned in what? Hieroglyphics. And, he, and, and Egyptian. But then when we get, he didn't write in that. He wrote in Hebrew. And the Hebrew alphabet, or a proto-Hebrew alphabet, they found in the... Uh, the certain mines in uh, Egypt, uh, turquoise mines in Egypt, where the, the miners kind of scribbled things on the wall in what appears to be an alphabetic script. So that's what you, Moses used. So I, I think that uh, the people who were evangelizing and responsible for the word used the best technology they had at the time. And so for Moses, it was going to an alphabet. Because nobody reads hieroglyphics except a few people in museums. No one reads cuneiform, it, you know, like from Babylon, you know, the great Babylon. They have thousands of documents, but they're just stuck in, in museums. But people read Hebrew today, uh, and we use the codex form of the manuscript. So that's it. Thank you. Uh, I, I've got stuff to, if you want to look. Uh, you know, pictures of manuscripts. Uh, so a guy named Hatch did an, al an album of dated Syriac manuscripts that people use to date manuscripts. You have some manuscripts with dates. You look at their handwriting, and then you can look at other manuscripts without dates and try to infer how old they are. So they do that. Or, you know, the Metzger did a book on manuscripts of the Greek Bible, and they do the same with Greek. Wherever there's something with a date, it's very important. Uh, and so they use those as standards to try to date other manuscripts. So when we talk about the earliest Greek manuscripts, they're all dated from, on paleographical uh, terms. So based on the handwriting, which is, you know, it's helpful, but not necessarily a, a complete solution, because you could always have someone that wants to imitate old manuscripts because they're pretty. So it's difficult. Anyhow, that's, that's it. But uh, uh, any, any questions other? They can, yes. I have a strange comment. Um, I would encourage you to keep your index cards and keep them for generations. Oh, the reason uh, is everything getting computerized, Yeah. even books published in the last 10 years have digital versions that are not accurate. Mm -hmm. Their entire mm. pages left out. Mm. Somebody is doing that for a purpose. Huh. 
I didn't know that. Yeah, there are classic literature is being republished today, but they're changing little things to be more modern mindset. Even even some Christian materials are doing things like this. So my encouragement is your research is so mm -hmm. valuable. Mm -hmm. um, it needs to be protected in a paper literal form. And that's one reason why these manuscripts are so important that we have because. Yeah. Uh, that you know, those are the originals. Uh, oh, that Greek manuscripts in the British Museum—that's Codex Sinaiticus, by the way. But we have those, so yeah, yeah, yeah. The old tech sometimes works pretty well. Yeah. Any other questions, comments? All right. Uh, yes, sir. Okay, how do you validate whether you found something that's old or not? Well, uh, the thing I found in Egypt many years ago, that was, it just fit in the missing portion of, the, of a manuscript in a British museum. Uh, with you know, Second Peter, I just uh, looked I, at, at books on Syriac manuscripts and I consulted with my buddy in Germany. He knows everything. So, uh, so basically I, I could de it's the, determine uh, the facts of the situation. Nobody knows about lectionary readings for the Phylloxinian text. So, but it was there all along. My, my buddy in Germany has been through that manuscript. But he was looking at Paul. You know, you don't have time to look at every little detail in a manuscript. So, anyhow, uh, but there are ways of doing it. Uh, so I, I can go more in depth on that. Actually, I was working last night on validating dates of when certain things showed up in lectionary manuscripts. So people looked at all these manuscripts in great detail. There's a lot of information. Yeah. All right. So thank you for your time, and uh, maybe we can revisit some of these things. <laughs>